Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, college football fans across the nation and around the world. This is Tim May with a special, The Tim May Show, because I'm joined by my good friend. Everybody knows who you are, Jeff Snook, my good friend, Jeff Snook. I always refer to him as my good friend, Jeff Snook. But uh, we've got a little special occasion here, the retirement of maybe the greatest college football coach of all time when the records are are finally written way up yonder, Uh you know, we're talking about Nick Saban, ladies and gentlemen, stepped down from the University of Alabama uh, yesterday after 17 seasons and uh, six national championships at Alabama, one at LSU. But I wanted to have my good friend uh, Jeff Snook on because Jeff, before he became a real estate mogul down in Florida, you know, he grew up in Ashland, went to Ohio State, and that put him in place uh, for one of the big moments in Nick Saban's uh, at that moment, a blossoming uh, football coaching career. And Jeff, let's just pick it up with that real quick. Uh, by the way, truth in advertising here, ladies and gentlemen, as soon as Jeff saw that Nick Saban bought a $17.5 million, do I have that correct, the number right, Jeff? You got the number exactly correct, Tim. $17.5 million Seacoast uh, side mansion in Jupiter Beach, Florida. This was back earlier this year. He called me, he said, this guy's retiring. And I said, what do you mean retiring? I said, he's a youthful, going to be a youthful 72. He goes, no, you don't, you don't buy a house like that to just go to on four weekends out of the year, which is what college football coaches get off anymore. Uh, this guy's retiring sooner rather than later. Jeff, you were right. I don't know what you win for that. You do win a Special guest shot on the Tim May show, but uh, welcome again, my man. You've been on there a few times. People know who you are, but uh, what what just told you that was the moment right there? Thanks, Tim. I wish there would have been a betting prop on that. Yes. But no, you know, real estate down here where I live in South Florida, especially on the coast, is so expensive. And Nick has his mansion in Tuscaloosa. He's got a big lake house in Georgia. I think he's got another vacation property somewhere. But it's different down here. When you spend $17.5 million for an oceanfront mansion in Jupiter, Florida, up where Tiger lives and uh, uh, Michael Jordan lives, yeah, that's not something you're going to use on weekends or vacation home. Or, oh, wait that, or, or uh, Verbo, or was it? VRBO. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. And then... I, I noticed some other things. So that was in August. And I right then I said, the, this is his last year. And then I noticed some things he said in post-game press conferences and his weekly press conferences where he took this big picture approach. 
Yeah. And you can tell he was appreciative of the fans. He's trying to teach his players to be appreciative of every moment. And it, I just had that read that this was going to be it. And uh, he gave every signal that this was going to be it. And I'm, I, I'm, Hey, I'm sure I'm not the only one that thought that some other people had to think it too. people close to him. Uh, you know, he just signed a number two recruiting class in America. Yeah. He got, he got 21 kids, most of what four and five star kids. And, uh, you know, he couldn't let that out of the bag to them because that would have clearly escaped. So he had to do the best job he could for uh, University of Alabama inside the best class he could do, all the while knowing he was probably leaving and let the chips fall as they may. And I think back to the uh, Michigan game now. I, well, let's go back a step further to the Auburn game. He's got a fourth and 31. I know, going, you know, looking back on it, going into that final Iron Bowl, he knew he was gone. This is the last year. Think how that game ended. He won his final Iron Bowl in a fourth and 31. Now he goes and he upsets Georgia's final SEC championship game. He knew going into that game, this was his final year. And now you go back to the Michigan game. Now think about this. Michigan was down to fourth and two on their own 40 with three minutes and 16 seconds left. They don't pick that up. Alabama only needs one first down or maybe another field goal to put them away if they would if it would have come to that. And that kid already made 250 yarders. So he'd have been looking at something a little bit less than that, probably. And Alabama would have gone on to play Washington. And you can't tell me they wouldn't have beat Washington in that uh, championship game in Houston. He would have gone out with a title. So he knew, I think he knew all along this is his final year. And that that last loss is going to linger with him a little bit because it probably meant an eight eighth national title yeah and uh that's how close to michigan was to having the same old stick with jim harbaugh can't win a bowl game or a big game or a playoff game fourth and two it was down in one final play and look how it turned out yeah. jim harbaugh is going to ride high to the nfl send you know his career out with a national championship for michigan their only consensus title they've won since 1948 and nick saban is going out with seven instead of eight titles and he's going out on a loss yeah. So, I mean, that was – that you talk about big plays. That fourth and two is a pretty big play now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But here's the, you know, here's the thing. By the way, I don't know why people keep – I mean, we, we've seen split national championships between the two wire services many times in my lifetime. In Michigan won 1997. They won the, uh, they won the AP poll, uh, and uh, Nebraska won the UPI poll. So, you know, if you don't give them credit for that, then you don't give Nebraska credit and Tom Osborne credit. So I'm not going to get into that because this that was pre-playoff. And the thing that stands out about Nick Saban is seven national championships uh, won on the field, six at Alabama, which, which in my opinion, uh, elevates him over Bear Bryant uh, in a, in a big-time way. I mean, I remember Bear Bryant in Alabama – you know, in 1965, they won a they won they won a couple of split national championships with Bear Bryant. Let me just leave it at that. I'll get all tongue twisted in here, but uh, but the bottom line is, I count those as national championships. Now, past that, bottom line is, and this is a tie-in, one of the many tie-ins with Ohio State. Uh, Nick Saban's final national championship was 2020 when it beat Ohio State in the Orange Bowl or Orange Bowl Stadium. Uh, down there, or whatever you call that stadium down there where the Dodgers play. Hard Rock Stadium. Yeah, Hard Rock Stadium. You and I were both there. That was his final national championship. And there's your tie-in, one of your tie-ins with Ohio State. But let's go back to way back when in the way back machine, 80, 1980 and 81. He's hired to replace Pete Carroll on the Ohio State staff by Earl Bruce. 
you covered him for the land. You were covering Ohio State back then for the Lantern, if I do remember correctly. And you just happened to be a fly on the wall, so to speak, on a very tough day in Ohio State program history when Earl Bruce was making some changes to his defensive staff after that narrow victory over Navy in the Liberty Bowl in 1981 season. Pick it up from there. Well, you know, I go back to Pete Carroll, 79 season when they went to the Rose Bowl, should have beat USC and won a national title. Had a pretty good secondary, a lot of veterans, uh, really good secondary. That team probably overachieved for their talent. That was a together team, Earl's first season in Columbus, and came within one point of two points to win a national title. And basically, if you ever watch that Rose Bowl, Ohio State dominated that game and did nothing but kick field goals in the red zone. They couldn't punch it in. And they led 16 to 10, about uh, two min five minutes left. Charles White led a drive the whole way. So be that as may, uh, uh, that doesn't had stick this... with you, does it, Jeff? <laughs> oh my gosh, it sticks with one of the worst oh. officiated games in the world. Oh, if, they had, yeah. if they had instant replay back then, I swear they would have overturned 25 calls in that game. I, oh, I'm yeah. not kidding. You. Oh. Anyway, yeah, but I digress, as I say, right, Tim? Yeah, as I say, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so he replaced him with a guy named Nick Saban. So think about that. Pete Carroll's a secondary coach, Nick Saban's a secondary coach back to back in three years. And now he's got freshmen and sophomores playing for him. So in 1980, if you look at the opposing quarterbacks, passing numbers, oh, my gosh. They, almost everybody set a school record against Ohio State in 1980. And he kept him for another year because he knew the secondary was young. 1981, it's a senior. A lot of seniors on the team, including Arch Schleister, who was a Heisman Trophy candidate. And they weren't that good up front, and they weren't that good at linebacker, but the secondary was even worse. So yeah. to win games – and, and the, Remember, they started out 3-0, and and they upset Stanford in Palo Alto. John Elway was junior. Arch Leister was a senior. They start 3-0. and They come back the next week, and Florida State upsets them and goes up and down the field again. And that began a long season for that defense. That secondary was absolutely terrible. I don't think a lot of it was Nick Saban's fault. He's just working with young kids. I mean, you know, they, they had passes go off their hands that were interceptions into the receiver's hands. That's how Minnesota beat them. Yeah. Uh, Mike Cohen, he set like Minnesota records that day. Everybody threw on him. So at the end of the year, they bear, uh, they go up to Michigan and win a, a defensive battle 14 to nine. Uh, Iowa goes to the Rose Bowl, by the way. There's three-way Big Ten tie, Iowa, Michigan, Ohio State, Big Ten championship. They get the Liberty Bowl bid back when there's only about 16 uh, bowl bids back then. Yeah. And they go play a Navy team, don't play very well, but they win 31-28. Earl had made up his mind really after the Minnesota game when the Rose Bowl slipped away that he was going to have to make defensive changes uh, to the staff. And he was going to fire the defensive coordinator, Denny Frizzell, and the linebackers coach, Steve Sabo. Steve Sabo was Nick's mentor. Nick was only 30 years old. So Nick is 30 years old, making $22,000 a year. Think about that in today's Yeah, terms. think about it. Making $22,000 a I year. I think they're left guards making that much every week. And they have uh, a staff meeting. Now, the, the Liberty Bowl, if I remember right, is December 30th. It was. It was December 30th. They yeah. come back home. They take the 31st and the 1st off. They come back in. And it was about the third or fourth, if I remember, because I was back in school and I would have been in St. John Arena when it happened. Back then, their staff, their staff offices were in St. John Arena. They also had some makeshift offices out at the Biggs facility, which is now the Woody Hayes Center. 
Yeah. But they were located in St. John up on one of the higher floors. I think it was the second and floor, but go ahead. Though. Was it? Yeah. And I was hanging around outside the office that day. I, I don't even know why I was there. I had a feeling something might be going on. Nick or uh, Earl had a staff meeting and he had the defense in there. And he, instead of firing them one by one, for some reason, he fired them together in a meeting. We started with Herzell and went to Sabo and he was going to keep the way I heard it from good sources. I, Earl might've told me this. I can't remember. Yeah, I think I he did. He, Earl told he you was, this. He was going to keep Nick Saban because yeah. Nick's he, he saw how bright he was. Yeah. But, but Nick had a temper, you know, back then, Nick, Nick wasn't very easy going. He was one of the younger guys, thought he knew everything. And let's face it, he is sharp. He did know a lot. Uh, and he stood up when his mentor got fired and pointed at Earl, threw out an expletive and said, if you let us run the blankety-blank defense we wanted to run, we wouldn't be in this position today. And Earl, knowing Earl, now Earl had a little stubborn streak in him too, and you didn't talk to him that way. And he pointed at Nick and he said, and you're fired too. So I just happened to be standing outside the offices uh, probably about 30 minutes later, and Nick is carrying a box of his office supplies out the door. <laughs> and I ask him, what, what, what's he doing? What did he say? Well, I just got, I, to paraphrase, I don't know the exact word he used, but he said, I just got canned. And uh, I went back and wrote a story for the Lantern about the three firings and, and why they happened. And I filled in a little detail. I found out a little detail, like the next four or five hours about that meeting and uh, put that in my story. And, and then the, the funny thing is he's 30 years old, making 22 grand a year. Thought about getting out of coaching. Yeah. Got an offer at Navy who they just beat. He just beat him. So he goes to Navy, be the secondary coach. He happens to meet a man by name of Steve Belichick who's on staff. That's Bill's father. He didn't know Bill, didn't know Steve, becomes very good friends with Steve. And that's how the friendship developed with Bill. And so as, as his career develops and he goes from Navy to uh, Michigan state as an assistant and goes on and on, uh, he and Bill become very, very close. They work together with the Browns. He oh, no, Bill, Bill, Bill hired him. Remember he was, yeah. uh, uh, Nick had become the head coach at Toledo, Toledo, and all of a sudden he leaves Toledo after I think one right. season. One cause, season, because Bill wanted him on his staff. He was impressed right. by him immediately, and uh, on that Brown staff, and you know they worked great together. Go ahead. Well, you want to take an unusual move? This doesn't happen very often. No. Your head, co your head coach at University of Toledo. They take he takes him to a bowl, if I remember, and I think they tied for the MAC championship. Yeah, one season he gets them all to buy in, and when he comes into the program, he makes a ton of changes. And after that one season, now he goes to the NFL as an assistant, not a head coach. Right, goes to the NFL as a defensive coordinator. Right, <laughs> excuse me. So that's such an unusual move to leave a head coaching job to become a coordinator, even if it is the NFL. And that's where his career really blossomed. I mean, he looked so totally different back then. He wore these big wire rim glasses all the time. He yeah. just he just looks so different than as he matured and got older. Uh, but that relationship with Bill Belichick, you know, helped develop his career. Then he goes uh, uh, becomes head coach at Michigan State. He upsets all, number one Ohio State in 1998. That that if he doesn't pull off that upset, Ohio State probably wins a national championship in 1998. And John Cooper's legacy would have totally changed. And I doubt he would have got fired uh, three years later. Yeah. So I mean, well, so yeah. I mean, it changed. It changed the propulsion for both of those guys i mean their right, right. their career uh and you're right i mean that was that was and like that game was 24 to 9 ohio yeah. state's ahead 17 to 9 at the half 
They get a pick six. They're up 24 to nine midway through the third quarter. It looks like they're going to cruise again. They were killing everybody that year. They were number one from August all oh, yeah. the way through that game. Joe yeah. Germain's having a great year now. He's the sole, sole starter. He doesn't, he's not sharing it with Stanley uh, Jackson. And, uh, and then just some fluke plays happened and, uh, and the left-handed quarterback from Michigan State, I can't Burke, think of his Bill name. Burke. Is that it, Bill Burke? Bill Burke, yeah. Uh, they got Plasco Burris one-on-one against uh, Antoine Winfield. That's Plasco it. Burris that's about 6'5". And right. they finally saw that, and they started right. throwing to it. <laughs> so they get to be 28-24, and Ohio State's driving at the end of the game. And yeah. they run out of downs, throwing into the end zone. I think Joe might have thrown a pick on the final fourth down play yeah. out of desperation. But that really – that led to Nick getting the LSU job. Yes. And that probably led to John Cooper getting fired because he never won a national title. And that was the last great chance of doing so. Those 95, 96, 98 teams, as you know, were national championship worthy. Just yeah. And just think about this. That was the first year of the BCS in 1998 also. And Ohio State ended up going playing to what Texas A&M in the uh, Sugar Bowl. Their, oh, that's right. their second straight Sugar Bowl. And, uh, and uh, you're, you're right. If there if there had been a college football playoff back then, right. Ohio State would have been in it a fourteen right. playoff. But instead, it was just two. And uh, you're right. I mean, it, Tennessee yeah, beat Florida. It changed State everything. Playing, yeah. yeah, Tennessee beat Florida State. It was playing a yeah. third string quarterback, Marcus yeah. Outs, in the Fiesta Bowl for the first ever BCS title. P. Right. Martin. Yeah. Yeah. Let me interrupt here just a second, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for a special bulletin. Yeah, we're sponsored by Game Time. Game time app, gametime.co. If you don't have, if you haven't downloaded the game time app to your cell phone, then you're missing out because you forgot. You forgot you want to go see the Ohio State Buckeyes basketball team play uh, this weekend or next or the Columbus Blue Jackets or whatever. Uh, and you want to get those last minute tickets. The game time app, gametime.co. That's the place to go. And, uh, but, you know, say you're going out to Vegas. I'm headed out to Vegas for Super Bowl week. I'm not going to the Super Bowl, but I'm headed out there. And uh, and say you want to get into the Super Bowl. Uh, right now, they don't have tickets. You know, they don't have the specific sites of tickets, but they do have they do have tickets available. Meaning you can reserve a ticket on a Game Time app, GameTime.co for well. The get in price right now is eight thousand two hundred thirty three dollars. Yeah, that's a lot. But if you're a big time fan of whoever makes a Super Bowl. The Game Time app, GameTime.co, that's the place to go. And, of course, the, the local local scene is what it is. You can always find uh, tickets to Columbus Blue Jackets, Columbus Crew, uh, the upcoming uh, National U.S. Figure Skating Championships uh, the, later this month at Nationwide Arena. Uh, Big-time rodeo coming to town in the middle of February. Those tickets are all on the Game Time, Game Time app, GameTime.co. And remember, if you make a purchase, if you download, make a purchase on Game Time, uh, the Game Time app, and you use the promo code Buckeyes, the promo code Buckeyes, you get twenty dollars off your first purchase, and also the guarantee that that's with every Game Time uh, purchase. If you find the same ticket in the same row, same general section, uh, for a lower price, Game Time will refund one hundred and ten percent of the difference. 110% of the difference. That's a hell of a guarantee. And of course, terms do apply to such things. But Game Time app, gametime.co, that's the place to go. The fastest rising, the fastest growing uh, aftermarket ticket site in the country. But, uh, but then bottom line is he goes to LSU, struggles kind of the first year, but then gets it going. And then uh, 
And then, boy, you know, they win the 2003 National Championship in the BCS game the year after Ohio State uh, beat Miami for the 2002 championship. And then 2004, I think they had a pretty good uh, pretty good year going, uh, but uh, things kind of fell apart a little bit. I'm trying to remember exactly, but all of a sudden the NFL comes calling the Miami Dolphins, and he jumped at it, right? And, you know, you're, you're in Florida. You'd been a sports writer. Uh, in Florida for how long up to that point? I mean, matter of fact, I think well, I wasn't working with daily newspapers when he took that job then, but you know, being down here, I followed. Oh the yeah. Dolphins you kept closely. up with it. You know, I'm a Browns fan, but I follow the dolphins. You can't help but follow them. Uh, and Wayne Huizinga saw uh, what everybody else saw Nick Saban, where he just threw a ton of money at him. If I remember and yeah. flew, flew him to Miami and uh, for the interview and, uh, and I don't know what was behind the scenes at LSU that he didn't want to stay there. That's a plum job. He had developed it in a national uh, title winner. But I, I know Wayne Huizinga threw so much money at him, I think he couldn't say no. Yeah, but always, I also think he had that itch. He did. To get back all to the these NFL. coaches. Yeah. All these coaches we saw Urban Meyer two years ago and Pete Carroll and now Jim Harbaugh is going to go back, I'm sure. But I'm, I've been sort of out of touch today. I don't know what news broke on that front. But these guys – uh, they win a national title. They always want to take a shot at winning the Super Bowl, too. And sure. Going th only three coaches ever done it, Barry Switzer and Jimmy Johnson and Pete Carroll now, who, by the way, got fired today, too. So Yeah, ironically. Uh, but anyway, Nick Saban's tenure at the Dolphins, now he, he started pretty well, and he was building that team. The next year they had a choice on free agency quarterbacks, free agent quarterbacks, if you remember. He had his choice between Dante Culpepper and Drew Brees. Well, Drew yeah. Brees was coming off a shoulder injury. And Culpepper was coming off a knee injury. So they had both doc they had their team doctors examine them both, if I remember this correctly. It's crazy. And the advice of the doctor, and I think their GM at the time or who they're working with, is they were more worried about Breeze's shoulder than Culpepper's knee. And they went with Culpepper. Now Nick's talked about this you know a lot oh, yeah. over the years, that if he'd only chosen Drew Breeze, he might not have left the Dolphins and and gone to Alabama. So well, the way he, I understood it, wait a minute. The, the way I understood the the story is he wanted Breeze, and uh, and soon as as soon as they made that decision not to pursue Breeze, that developed a wedge for him with management, et cetera. The way I understood it, because he well, thought he was going to be able to, uh, you know, run it like a college program. I want this guy. I want this guy. And then when you don't get that guy because somebody overrules you the medical guys overrule you. I think the, the way I understood the story, but go ahead. That might've been a little revisions. The way I remember it was Nick was relying on doctor's opinions. And he's, I thought he said as much over the years that the doctors got it wrong and he underestimated Drew Brees. And I thought he was a part of that decision. I don't think Wayne Heisinger would have given him the money he gave him and the control he gave him without uh, getting some input and taking his input. So uh, you know, I wasn't covering the Dolphins then, so I don't know the whole story, but I've heard him say, refer to it several times, and I thought it came down to doctors' opinions. They just couldn't trust that Drew Brees would ever be the same after that shoulder surgery. Yeah. And as we see, he's a Hall of Fame quarterback and had a heck of a career. Won a but, Super Bowl. Yeah, and then the and then when the Crimson Tide came calling, now that's a month I do remember, that month of December that year, which would have been 06, I believe. Uh, yeah. Every day, the rumors were so rampant that the 
Miami media, the South Florida media was peppering him with Alabama questions. And I mean, he looked right in that camera several times and said, listen, I'm not taking the Alabama job. I'm not taking the Alabama job. I'm not going to be the Alabama coach. Exactly. I'm going to be the Miami Dolphins coach. And next thing you know, he flies off to Tuscaloosa and takes the job. But what he meant was, I'm going to be the Alabama coach (laughs) until the end of this year. And then, and then he hey, gets you know, wait a minute. Let me before you before you talk about him flying off to Alabama because that was one of the great moments in college football history. As it turns out, do you know what his last win was as the Miami Dolphins head coach? If I'm if I'm not mistaken, no, I don't. They beat the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick. Okay, there you go. And I think it was a shutout. Bill Belichick, I think, it said several times if Nick Saban had stayed in the East, there. Uh, AFC East, uh, it might have been a tougher road to hoe for him and, well, and the Patriots. So, Well, you know, the Dolphins have never solved the quarterback issue since Dan Marino retired. I mean, right. Coach Parcells has tried. Everybody's tried. Jimmy Johnson tried. Everybody's tried. They just couldn't get it right. And, the, you know, now they got a guy that is inconsistent. I mean, uh, two, you know, two of them. Yeah, but there's, they uh, made he's, the- he's had, had a great season. We'll see what he does in the playoffs. And, and who now. coached him in college? Exactly. Nick Saban. Yeah, but, but, uh, Anyway, uh, what I remember about Nick Saban arriving at Alabama the very first year, can you name the team in 2007 that he lost to at home? I think Louisiana the name of the team. I think, I, I think that uh, wasn't. Uh, oh yeah, Louisiana Monroe. Didn't That's, they also lose? They also lost to Florida that year, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They did. Yeah. But I'm saying Louisiana, the mighty Louisiana Monroe came marching into Tuscaloosa and beat him his first season. He wasn't so popular, and then you know 2008. Yeah, it was when they lost to Florida. But, no, you're right. Louisiana Monroe has always been tough. Right, right. But, <laughs> but like a lot of these coaches, I mean, you look at Trestle and, uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. There's about five of them. That second year, it, boy, that's when they turn it around. Yeah. And that's and that's what Nick did. I mean, Jim Trestle did the same thing. There's several coaches the second year uh, win national titles. So now they've got a full year under their belt. Their system's under their belt. Second year recruiting is usually their best year, too. And that, and then once he got it going, Alabama, there was no stopping him. I mean, he, uh, you know, and the thing is, what he'll tell you, he's won six there. He's t- he'll tell you about the three or four that got away. Oh, I yeah. mean, that they could have won. And this this year might have done his best coaching job uh, from the way they started. They couldn't get a first down at South Florida, and then all of a sudden, once Jalen Milrow develops, like everybody thought he would. Uh, you know, and I still, I was wrong about the Michigan game. I'll, I'll admit it right here. I thought they beat Michigan by 10 to 17 points. I did too. And they, and they had them down 20 to 13 and were driving uh, to put them away. And I thought that Tommy Reese's offensive coordinator really called a bad series. Yeah. If they had that series back, that was a bad series. They could have gone up 23-13. I'd take that back. It was 17-13. They were driving. They settled for a field goal. But if he gets a touchdown there, they got them where they want them. And yet it came down to fourth and two, like I said. And that is that's the biggest play of the season to me, that fourth and two. They don't get it. Alabama wins a title and he retires going out. They got it. And now Michigan won a title. But uh all right. Here's here's what I want to touch on with you. This is what has impressed me about Nick Saban all along. He's always been a student of the game. He's a detailed dude. You know, that's how those guys operate. That's how they become great. They're detailed dudes. Don't put up with second rate. They don't put up with uh as Urban Meyer would say, uh, average. Who wants average? You know, they want excellence. They strive for excellence. If they, if they don't get it from either their players and or their coaches, their boot is up up, up your rear end, you know. And, uh, I mean, he's been one of those kind of guys. But he also, what impressed me, what's impressed, what impressed me about him is the same thing impressed me about his, his 
the the uh, forerunner there at Alabama way back when Bear Bryant was. He didn't just sit pat. If something new came along, uh, he either tried to figure out how to beat it or he joined the club, you know. And that's what Nick Saban did during his time at Alabama was offensively, he changed grudgingly, but he changed, and they became one of the more high-powered offenses in the country instead of three yards in a cloud of dust, you know. And uh, just those little things about him, and just think about all the assistant coaches he went oh, yeah. to at Alabama. Jeff, the staff was different, it seems like, almost every year. The guys he reclaimed, like Steve Sarkeesian, a great example there, but the guys who were kind of on the Lane Kiffin were on the – you know, the junk pile, and he brought them back and resuscitated their careers and got something out of it at the same time, right? I mean, that's pretty damn impressive. Oh, it is. And what he got was great support. I mean, Alabama knew they wanted to get back to their glory days when they hired him, and they gave him unconditional support. So, in other words, if you look at their staff list, and I've done it over the years, Hillary Clinton, right now, Nobody would know Charlie Strong's on that staff, the ex-Texas coach. He is. He's an analyst. Yeah. yeah. If you look, if you look at their list of analysts, former coaches, I mean, every year it was just a who's who of coaching. Yeah. So what he when these guys would leave for head coaching jobs, Kirby Smart, Jim McElwain, I go down the list, Bill O'Brien, he'll bring in somebody just as good, and they take, excuse me, they take the job knowing they can, you know, refurbish their career being under the best they learn from him they take it go be successful i mean kirby smart's got so much nick saban in him and you know they'll tell you what they learn from him. it's just no different than the guys who work for urban i believe that's what happened to luke fickle luke fickle in 2011 didn't know what he didn't know uh you know and fumbled around trying to be a head coach and, and you can't blame him he didn't have that experience yeah, he didn't All get right. to hire a staff either except for one guy mike Gray. yeah i know i know yeah. but any and he got handed the job very late but you know, Luke's a defensive coach, didn't know the offensive side of the ball as well. So now he spends two, three years under Urban Meyer, and he sees how somebody else does it. And then you watch his co- teams at Cincinnati and how they play. You can tell what he learned. And it's the, oh, same, yeah. it's the same with all the guys under Nick. But Nick, Nick, you know, had such great support at Alabama, and he combined that with their recruiting machine. And once they got it going, they were like a locomotive that couldn't be stopped. I mean, if it wasn't for Clemson and Dabo developing that program, Nick would have had two or three more, maybe even more than that, uh, because they kept meeting in either the semifinals or the championship game. And, and you know, he's a great recruiter. What people don't realize about Nick, he's got a personal side, and he shows it during recruiting. I've seen it hanging around him a few times. He's a funny guy. He's got a great personality. He yeah. really does. When yeah. you watch him with the press, you, that doesn't come out, but it comes out when he recruits. It comes out in living rooms. It comes out when he's hanging out and it's off the record. And, and that's one of his strengths. He's really, and he's sharp. I mean, he knows football inside and out. He and Belichick have something in common like I've never seen. They teach situational football like nobody else. The little details that win and lose games. The old adage, most games aren't won, they're lost. Yeah. And what they do is go down the list and eliminate things in their system and teach their kids. These are what loses games. These are the long, and they eliminate them. They practice them. Little things, reaching for the pylon on first, second, and third down and losing the ball out of bounds. I've seen that happen about three or four bowl games. I saw it happen in the uh, NFL uh, last week. You don't do that. For, they teach those things. This yeah. little thing, how not to jump on fourth and fifth, five or less. You never see those teams do that. Yeah, you know they minimize their false starts. 
their dead ball penalties, their unsportsmanlike, their personal fouls, all those type of things. And then you get back to the fundamentals of blocking, tackling, and coverage. Nobody is an expert at coverage like Nick Saban. His defensive backs always play the ball and don't they get less pass interference calls than anybody else. I mean, just all the little details that lose ball games, they eliminate them. And not to mention, so you combine that with top five, top two, top three recruiting class year after year after year, and all the support system Alabama has there, that structure they have, they're going to win national championships. And they're in the toughest conference back then. Uh, Big Ten might have an argument these days. Uh, toughest yeah. conference parentally in, in the uh, in the country. So I can't say enough about him. The guy won seven hey, titles. How much do you think it's going to eat at him, though, <laughs> overtime against Michigan? Blake Corum. Two shots, touchdown. I mean, yeah. right up the gut. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, women, women, and then the way the way their the way their overtime period went with Jalen Miro finally on that little yeah. game, cat and mouse game they played with the timeouts, just like basketball coaches. And uh, you know, I believe in calling your best play and running the play. That's what I believe. Because, yeah, I know you do. Uh, the, uh, there's no way the defense knows exactly what you're running. Well, Michigan might have until about. Uh, five or six weeks ago. But uh uh but the bottom line is I think they I think he dilly dallied too much in that regard uh down there. And then they run a play like, you know, yeah, if everybody does exactly their job, right. you right. score. But you know, yeah, here Michigan's my opinion, coming after you. So my opinion of that that's gonna eat at him, I'm telling you, man. Oh, yeah, you oh, said yeah. he could have well, gone out the way he wanted to go out, which was, you know, right. Let me go in order here. My opinion of that play was the margin of error was too great. Yeah, it had to be perfect. Agreed. That's what I'm talking about. I thought yeah. for sure they would get him out on the edge, give him a run pass option. Or, yeah. or like, remember I told you, a, a quarterback sweep with a lead and then drag the tight end behind him. So if it's not there, he's got somebody to throw to. Yeah. And he's so good in space. Well, that's what that's his strength. That's what you want to give him. Uh, so Michigan anyway, though had that defender lurking out there, you know, on, to the wide well, side. Well, they shot the field. they shot the edges, so they would have had to yeah. block the one. But they edge also had a guy lurking, you know, rolling so, to the yeah. right. But uh, but anyway, yeah, he's going to live with that a long yeah. time. Here's the other thing: today's January the tenth, right? Yes. Okay, so the game ended the first, and the way he went out and he wanted to wait for the championship game to be played, obviously. I guarantee you in the last 10 days, I'm taking a stab here. I, I think he might've had maybe some second thoughts of this plan that he put in place over the summer, over the off season. That, as I said, he's going to retire this year. I told everybody he's going to yeah, retire this year. And uh, I, I just, I got a feeling the last 10 days, he had some trepidation and, and, and I didn't see any press conference today, anything like that. I've been out of touch all day. My son had a football banquet tonight, but I got a feeling he might've had some severe second thoughts because of the way that game ended not only the way the game ended, what he's got coming back next year. Oh, yeah. Bill Rowe and that talent coming back. You know, you can't tell me he didn't want to go out winning a national title in the second thoughts, but I just think they've made such a commitment. They had this plan in place, this new home. He'll sell his Tuscaloosa home, just completely relocate. He loves to be on the water. He has about three boats. He loves the water. You know, do all those type of things. Well, he's a water person. He's a warm weather person. Yeah. Uh, and I think they that he, and as they say, Miss Terry, had all this plan in place and he probably just didn't want to backtrack on what they had in motion. He just signed a heck of a class. Those 21 kids right now. Uh, plus he probably would have got a couple more by February 7th and signing day. I, you know, I really wonder what they're going through. Well, here's what happens. Here's what happens. This is what's, 
crazy about modern college football now, which is one of the things I know he detests is the transfer portal and uh, NIL to a certain extent, although he believed in players getting their just due. But, uh, you know, the players have 30 days to go into the transfer portal now because their head coach has left. Well, there's going to be and some people making calls. So it's going to be very interesting. To, I mean, the buzzards, you know, are, are circling. Circling. Right, right. And, uh, and it's going to be interesting to, to see what happens in that regard. But you know what's fine? I want to get to this, though, Jeff. Uh, that South Florida game, after they got beat by Texas by double digits in Bryant-Denny Stadium, then they go to South Florida, rare, you know, game in Tampa. And uh, South Florida almost upset them. But, I mean, I mean, the point was, the, the, what the word out then was, Saban, you remember all those stories, Saban's lost his touch. Uh, he's – it's pretty much not the same Nick Saban as old. And I do believe, and Urban Meyer believes this too, because I've done this thing all year, as you well know, the last couple of years with Urban during the season called Urban's Take. And we really think that this might have been as fine a coaching job as Nick Saban did in his career from that South Florida game on. Where do you come down on that? Yeah, I, I couldn't disagree. If you look at the progress of a team makes from game one to game 12, and you look at them in the Texas game, and, you know, a lot of people, you look back at that Texas game, and I watched that game from beginning to end. The score ends up 34-24, but let's be honest. A lot of times these scores are deceiving. So you say it's a double-digit score. It's 27-24 late in the game, yeah. and they tacked, they tacked one on. Alabama had their chances to win it. Alabama was dominating parts of that game. So what was more shocking than that, because the talent Texas has – in addition to Quinn Ewers going in there and playing well, is the next week, as you said, South Florida. Now, South Florida team's not very good. Uh, I mean, they were team Alabama should be playing on the road anyway. But right. uh, I don't know if that was a two for one. I can't remember. Well, it gave South him Florida. a chance probably to go check on his uh, on his retirement but, home. <laughs> but they made a they made a quarterback. That's the other coast. But they made a quarterback change, and 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 I I just don't think he and Tommy Rees were on the same page at that time at that point. Here's the other thing. If Nick would have come back, say he changed his mind, comes back, I doubt if he'd have kept him as coordinator. Nope. I really, I, I don't think that ended the way he wanted to. I think there's parts of Tommy Rees that he didn't know what he was getting. And remember, they took the Notre Dame transfer quarterback who didn't work out. Tyler as Butler, well. who didn't uh, but, started the uh, South Florida the game. Jay, the way yeah. Jalen Milrow uh, developed, and you know, he could have brought in about anybody he wanted to bring in, and. You know, if, they, if he'd have given him a commitment that he's going to be there two more years. So I bet there's a lot of dynamics behind the scenes. Obviously, we don't know about Yeah, it. but let me interrupt. I mean, I, I literally saw Nick Saban in my mind coaching, especially after the South Florida game. The offense, as we have it structured, is not going to work for Jalen Milrow, who didn't yes. play that day. Right. This offense is not going to work. And this this is just a, a trite way of putting it, but they've – pretty much went to the 2005 Texas offense from then on with uh, the that uh, Texas used to, with Vince Young, this exactly. superior running talent and a really good passer. If he didn't have to sit there and read a defense, just if that first guy didn't open and maybe the second guy run because you're such a talent well, that way, that's exactly what Alabama did from then well, on with Jalen right. Milrow. And it was a stroke of genius. One thing I noticed about Jalen Milrow, he had two strengths. One, he could throw the deep ball oh, yeah. very, very well. And the other one, he could pull it down and take off. So if you put those two together, you stretch that defense, get those safeties back there, and they and he hit several of them. 
And now when the safeties are back there, now the run game, when he Correct. pulls it down, is so much more effective. It's pretty so damn that, simple. That <laughs> combination of how Jalen Mirrell developed was a perfect, you know, basically perfect zone. You know, this is an age-old story, too, in college football. There aren't many kids. Their first, second, third, fourth starts are that great. Look at CJ against CJ Stroud against Oregon. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Now, once 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 they catch up to the speed of the game and everything slows down, and they've got a couple mistakes under their belt, a couple games under their belt, and this is perfect story for Milrow. It's the same thing. He became a superstar. Yeah. Uh, look, you asked me who's going to win the Heisman next year. He'd be my number one. Here, Carson Beck, it's between yeah. those two. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it, you know, he's he was so – that's why I was so confident they would beat Michigan. And yet, uh, you know, they weren't picking up that extra blitzer a lot of times early in the game. Michigan got after him. I think they had five first-half sacks, only one in the second half. Right. That staff made better adjustments than Michigan did at halftime, just like I thought they would. They just didn't put them away when they had the chance. Right. But, uh, you know, I want, I want to add one more thing about Nick. Well, you talked about that story in 1982 when Earl fired him. Uh, I caught up with him at the Sugar Bowl when you were there with uh, the first semifinal game of the playoff 10 years ago Yeah, that's right. in, in the Superdome. And I brought that up to him, you know, the whole thing and reminisced a little bit in his direct quote. And I gained so much respect for him back then when he said this, he goes, if I had, a, if I had an assistant talk to me the way I talked to Coach Bruce back then, I'd have fired him too. I was disrespectful. I shouldn't have done it. I apologize for it. It was, I was young, immature, hot-headed. And, you know, when you think about that now, of course, it's easy to say when you have these titles and your net worth's $100 million. But that I gained so, – and I always did like him. You know, I, there's nothing oh, about yeah. him. You know, he's always gotten a bad rap in the media or, or fans outside the state of Alabama. I, I think he's a good guy, and he, he's fun to be around. He's got, like I said, a great person. a great sense of humor. He's always treated me great. And, yeah. Uh, I think the world of him. I mean, you know, is there a great – when you go by championships, not just victories, I think he ends up with 292 victories. And I was a couple guys like Joe Paterno, Bobby Bowden, Barry Bryant, over 300. Uh, and I'm surprised he didn't – that's another issue. Maybe stay just to get that 300 mark, but I don't no. think it meant that. It didn't mean that much to him. He's got more titles than anybody else. He's got seven, seven, seven. national championships in the playoff era. And He's got seven not- since 2003. And- and here's the key, Tim. They're not polls. Bingo. That's what I've always said. I made a I made a talk show host mad down in Alabama on a show I was on last year down there where I brought up, I said, you know, it's, it's funny, man. I grew up going to Alabama games in the six, early 60s with my dad and my older brother, Ben, you know, back when Bear Bryant walked on water and everything else, you know. And uh, Bear Bryant was a hell of a coach, and he brought it back to the capstone, you know. But uh, Nick Saban's achievements are, are superior, I go, how can you say that? I go, because he's won all of his national championships on the field. You had to, He had to play what was considered to be the first or second best team in the country at the end of the year, uh, you know, at the end of the year to win it. And then when the CFP came along, uh, he had to win uh, two of those kind of teams and uh, two of those kind of games, and he lost some. But just think about that, Jeff. 2003 to, through 2023, he won seven of the 21 21- uh, champ, 21 championships contested uh, either at LSU or at Alabama. That's crazy, isn't it? Well, you took a shot at me earlier for what I said about Michigan. Michigan started playing football in 1870-something. And listen, until this year, Tim, they had never won a consensus national title on the field until this year. 1997, I knew that Nebraska team very well. I knew Tom Osborne. I watched every one of their games. That's the reason I couched that. 
and I saw the Michigan teams in 1997. If that had been the BCS here one year earlier, yes, Nebraska would have clobbered them. I'm not going to yeah, probably, I'm, but I'm it was yeah. no, I know, but I'm just saying. So you go back to 48, but all Michigan's titles, I don't even know how many they count. 15 or 16 they happened from 1878 to 1935 <laughs> yeah. you know they, they they counted a magazine as a tire magazine uh, of voters as a title back when they, they allegedly sometimes played <laughs> ringers you know i'm just throwing that out I mean, there me, but, but anyway i mean you think about they always pride themselves on winning this program in college football history they've won one title on the field Dude, isn't it amazing, though, that Ohio State won the first CFP championship, the first 14 playoff, and Michigan won the last one? And now it's like a free-for-all. It's an all-comers event, you know, with 12 teams. I mean, you know, we're in for a total different era now. I'm just wondering if Nick – if that helped Nick kind of go, too, you know, because I I think he was – just from hearing him talk and stuff, uh, obviously we didn't cover him, but I think – I think this – I think this whole transfer portal NIL stuff is just like not what he signed up for. You no, know, you're, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, look he at didn't, all these... he, he's not a guy that lives in the past, but the headaches that it has brought right. on major college football staffs now are just stupid. No, look at all the ingredients that led to his retirement. Number one, he doesn't need any more money. His net worth skyrocketed. Yeah. Number two, he's got a Dude, he's got Merce- he's got car dealerships. Yes. You know? He's right. He's making money off the field. He's got a statue outside Bryant Denny Stadium, made them. He's got seven national titles. He just bought this $17.5 million mansion, as we mentioned. You got the NIL and the transfer portal making his life miserable. Yeah. He's got to still go recruit and sign 18-year-old kids, and now he's 72 years old. I mean, if you look at it all, you you wonder why he stayed this long because he was yeah. having fun. He'll tell yes. you the funnest times he had's in practice, making one kid go from a good player to a great player, making an average freshman go to a good sophomore to a great junior. Yeah, that's what made him thrive. That's what made him come back year after year, and then collectively seeing their teams from August through November, get better and better and better. Yeah. And, 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 and almost everybody has a podcast now, right? Or access to a podcast, just like you, you have access to mine. And uh, I'm just throwing that out there for you. But like, you know, you're, you're you know, for example, recently, some player's dad showing a video of his son in practice. And I think his son left for the transfer portal. He, he basically continued his son should have been playing and stuff. And, and usually that would, you know, fall on deaf ears 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But now everybody's looking for something to stir, et cetera. So with the multimedia thing going on out there, in it's crazy now. He, you know, he had that to deal with. And uh, and the criticism, you know, they don't beat South Florida. They don't beat South Florida like they should have. And everybody, Nick Saban's done. Well, he, he proved in one fell swoop he isn't done. And I think, truly believe this, uh, I mean, Jim Trussell didn't want to do this either. Jim Trussell didn't want to get to a point in his life. Now, his coaching career was cut short, you know, not of his own doing. Well, you know, yes, it, was. it was by someone else is what I meant. I mean, you know, you could say it was his own doing. Uh, but the bottom line is he didn't want to get to that Joe Paterno point to where all of a sudden some of the fun things you could have done, now you're too old to do them, so you might as well just stay coaching football. I really believe Nick Saban – has always had that in his heart, don't you? And then, oh, yeah. and then on top of that, like he was talking about, like you're talking about player development. Like he said, 
uh, recently in, a, in, in interviews, he said he's never had an NFL scout or coach or general manager ever ask. He said he's never asked me, so how did this guy play as a freshman? You know, but now everybody comes in, they're ballyhooed, they're four and five stars. They're on the number one, number two, number three recruiting class in the country. They all want to play as a, as Urban Meyer calls them, the third uncles of them want to know why they're not playing, et cetera. And he had a grip on it, but a lot of people around major college football now are losing that grip. And, uh, you know, he, he pretty much told it like it was for the most part. You agree on that, right? Yeah. Well, bear in mind, you know, every year guys like Nick Saban, and Urban Meyer get one year older and the kids are coaching stay the same. They're yeah. always 18 to 22. And now Nick Saban's not 52 or 62 anymore. He's 72. So the, the gap and the distance and, you know, the old school values don't carry over to this generation as well. You know, he, you know, a lot of, he's trying to recruit kids that believe in those values, but maybe their parents are a little different. I mean, there's so many variables going on back there. You know, yeah. It's like ju junction boys that, you know, they ask them to run through a wall and they don't question you why or how they go do it. Well, that, that, that air is long gone and that wears on guys that are older. Is that and, wall uh, brick or wooden? Go ahead. Exactly. Why are we, why are we doing it? Why, yeah, why practice, are we doing this coach? Why is practice two and a half hours instead of uh, an hour and 45 minutes? And you don't, yeah. you don't realize back in the day, they didn't have two a days. They had three a days. Yeah. And then, and then it went down to two a days and now it's one a days. Yeah. And now there's walkthroughs and shells and now there's walkthroughs with no helmets. And, and there's water. It, it, oh yeah there's yeah, not they get to drink water now there's water and everything else but <laughs> yeah the, you know I yeah, think they're really that. lucky they didn't kill about 500 guys a year back then you know i think about nick saban's life and let me tell you another good little story probably a lot of people don't realize he's a freshman at kent state when the shooting happens on uh is that may 4th 1970 do i got my date right yeah i think you got the date right but go ahead though and people uh, can look it up there's google I, I, you know, and because I'd have been 10 years old, but uh, he, he told the story often that he walks by and the National Guard has unloaded their weapons and he walks by right after that. And the Pulitzer Prize winning photo of the girl, I think it was a girl lying there. Uh, no, the girl screaming and the guy's a victim, male yeah. victims lying there, the girl screaming. He walked right by there and almost was in that photo. I mean, think about that now. A guy yeah. like Nick Saban, the greatest football coach now. And, you know, his mentor was Don James. Uh, that was at Kent State, who became yeah. the Washington coach. And he talked about that moment and changed his life and how he looked at life. And, you know, he grew up, uh, his father was a disciplinarian in Fairmont, West Virginia. And I think he owned a gas station, if I got, if right. I remember. And, right. and uh, Nick told about his values and he was a football, he knew football well, his father. And, you know, he took after him. And it's, it's just amazing. And then he gets in, like the story we told about him getting fired and talk about perseverance and, building your life back up through hardships and getting canned and maybe wanting to become a salesman and, and now to where it's become and, and the money in coaching and how much he's got in the bank and the, I, you know, it's like, it just, it's just, it's, it's like, you can't make that up. It's no. and, uh, and truth. It, truth is yeah. a stranger in fiction. And the other thing is, you know, Nick Saban's about this tall, you know, he's not a giant. Yeah. He's a little guy. Yeah. He's just like Jim Trussell, but Jim Trussell always looked taller to me, you know, because, he had this presence about him and Saban was the Saban was Saban is the same way. I mean, how a guy, you know, played at Kent state, you know, I guess was a decent football player, but you know, just like Bill, Bill Belichick, he was no superstar football player, but these guys, 
had something about them, a glow, whatever you want to call it, that attracted uh, football players. As soon as they could show them, yeah, you can trust what I'm telling you. I know what I'm talking about. You know, it changed not only Nick Saban's life, but it changed those players' lives, you know? And yes. uh, that's, that is, that's a gift in my opinion. And there aren't a lot of guys uh, who were, who are given that gift. I think you agree, don't you? I do. And, you know, success breeds success in coaching. So, sure. you know, a, a lot of Nick's But methods, you got to have that first success, you know? Right. But a lot of Nick's methods who led – it led to success in the old days where you could you could get away with more with players and teach them more. Now you have credence with the new kids because of your resume. Now, if a, if a new coach came in and tried to teach and coach like Nick Saban now without a resume, never won a title – hadn't been anywhere. I mean, kids would rebel against him sure. and he wouldn't be that successful. You got to have that resume where the kids know what you're teaching them, what you're telling them is true. If I listen to him, I'm going to be a first round pick. We're going to win national championships. I am buying in. This is the chemistry of a football team. I am buying into it. He will make me the best. Now, a younger coach came in with those same methods and taught the same thing and was as stern or strict as he was at certain times. You know, they might not be successful at all. It's just he he came through at the right era. He, you know, being as old school, he's 72 years old now. He started tasting the success in the late 90s at Michigan State. Well, no, to Toledo, like you pointed Toledo. out. Toledo, no he showed he knew Toledo. what he was talking about. Sure, but I mean, yeah. kids at Michigan State don't sure. care what you did at Toledo for sure, one sure. year. But, but he had that NFL pedigree, too. Correct. So when he and Belichick get together in the meeting rooms with the Browns all the years, and if you remember, the, uh, those Browns teams uh, weren't great teams. What they did have was a great defense. And yeah, because yeah. those two minds were, you know, and then they had the problem with Bernie Kosar, whether to keep him or not, and yeah. Belichick basically ran up. But those those Browns' defenses were as good as there were in the league because yeah. of those two guys. Kurt Ferris was on that staff. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, that was a that was a hell of a football staff. Well, here, what's what do you think? We'll, we'll we'll end it with this. What what what's his legacy? I mean, kind of touched on a lot of that just now, but uh, you've written a lot of books. You spent a year and a half or so with Frank Beamer, you know, wrote one really good book about Frank Beamer and what made Frank Beamer tick. And, you know, we can't, you can't always all be at a place where you have everything going for you, where you can win national championships, but you win more than you lose and you get people to believe in you. And, uh, and boy, when everybody's rowing the same boat, like they did at Virginia tech with Frank Beamer, when he was there, you got to know, you got to cover Bobby Bowden in his prime, you know, way back when you got to co cover Steve Spurrier when you were, like, like I said, when you were a sports writer down there for the Palm Beach Post, uh, you got to know those guys extremely well. You wrote a great uh, ep, uh, obit, whatever you want to call it, tribute to Bobby Bowden when he passed away uh, recently. So what do you think? Because uh, obviously uh, Nick is going to go. He's going to go fishing. He's going to go playing golf. He's going to drive his boats. He loves his. He loves the boat. Uh, but what do you think is going to be his legacy uh, when you get get right down well, to it, besides just winning? It's going to be interesting to read over the next couple of days. And I'm sure people have already used the term the greatest football coach of all time because what they're going by is the total national championships, not the yeah. number of victories. Um, he probably could have uh, he probably could have stayed and extended his resume a little more. He, he's getting out at the right time. You know, only 17 years at Alabama. When you look at Woody Hayes, 28 years at Ohio State. You look at Tom Osborne, 72 to 97 at Nebraska. 
uh, a lot of guys have Paterno coached longer. I think Nick squeezed the most success out of the limited time he had. And when I say limited, 17 years compared to the old guys, the Frank Broyles, the Daryl Royals, the all these guys we're talking about, Woody, uh, Bo, all these guys, they yeah. you know they wanted to be buried in their coaching gear. I mean, Bear, look at Bear's career, A&M, Kentucky, Alabama. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Daryl Royal, don't put him in that group because he retired early. He retired in yeah, his 50s. Retire but, but I'm with you. I know what but you're the talking point, about. But what has changed, yeah. too, is the money they make. They didn't need to coach in their mid-70s. You know, back then they needed to coach their mid-70s to pay yeah. their bills. Oh, they didn't yeah. have any other way of making money. These guys now, you get fired and you get paid $35 million. Nick's been making over $10 million a year now for about five years. His, like I said, his net worth's got to be way over $100 million. So yeah. he can walk away with a golden parachute no matter what. He's walking away on his own terms. He's retiring, not getting fired like everybody else does. And his legacy has got to be, I would say, because of the championships. Uh, I would label him because the championships in that category is the greatest coach of all time. But I still, I'm always a fan of the, I guess, legacy of changing lives. Like I've told you, every season you coach, you could change 85 lives. And that's why Woody Hayes and Bobby Bowden and Joe Paterno, not the way he ended, uh, those guys will always be up there with me because I look, they coached five and six decades total, five decades oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. total from the time they got in high school coach and college coach all the way through. Look at the number of lives they changed. If you told up the number of lives these, these coaches have changed and you grade them that way, I'm always going to hold those guys in a little higher regard because they spent their whole lives doing it. And yet, Nick, you know, when it comes to success of titles, like I said, but uh, it's just there's different categories of it. It's so subjective. And the game has changed. Money's changed the game, too. And let's face it, these guys now are just multi, multi millionaires where Woody, Bo, Daryl Roy, all those guys, you know, money was not even a factor. Yeah. Imagine imagine the money that those guys would have made. But. Would they have lasted that long in this new era, too? I mean, see, I, Nick's one of those – Nick Saban's one of those guys that's transcended, man, from uh, from the 70s to the 2023s, uh, back when coaches were king, you know, and uh, and now he's going out the way he wanted to go out, like you said. I mean, he would like to have gone out a national champion one more time, number eight, but that would really pale – everyone else's achievements. Just think about what people thought about Newt Rockney. You know, he got killed in that airplane crash, but he only won three national championships, you know? And, uh, you know, but the legends, man, Eric Parsegi in Notre Dame, I mean, he was a legend while he was there, but he was kind of a comet. He came and went. Nick came, stayed. Yeah, three different places were really where he put down his roots at Michigan State, LSU, and, uh, and finally at Alabama. But, uh, you know, his oh. success followed him everywhere. But what stands out to me is, like you said, the number of players that he affected, that was Jim Trussell's big line, was he wanted to affect players. He wanted to right. affect young people. Right. And not well, just to win, but to really get their attention is, if you win, now they're really going to listen to you, right? Well, you know, I've known coaches that develop kids not only in the football field, but for life. Bobby Bowden was one of the greatest I've yeah. ever seen. He, he, he stressed not only their education, their faith, and wanted to make sure they become good husbands, fathers, and develop them off the field. Woody was who was better than education than pushing education than Woody was. I'm sure Bo did the same thing in at Michigan. Other coaches, you, you know, they develop these kids as sons 
they're always looked at them as their sons, not their players, and develop them for life. One thing I'll say about Nick, and maybe we don't uh, bring this up enough, probably no coach has adapted better from the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s to 2010s to the 2020s the Nick Saban that's what I said earlier yeah yeah, you said you mentioned it earlier but you know and I'm talking about not only the different type of kids you get nowadays but the how football's evolved correct back in the 60s the forward pass was just coming along and then you look what happened you know with Big Ten offenses over the years and now look at Alabama Alabama won a variety of ways they've won with dual threat quarterbacks they've won with pocket passers guys like Greg McElroy I mean come on they won national titles with different systems because he was so smart to adapt to what the what was the new rage and what was going on and yet he always wanted a balance and I've always believed the greatest teams the greatest offenses have a balance you stop the run, and these teams can't throw the ball. You have pass-happy offenses that can't run the ball. Nick always wanted a good balance like the great coaches do. He was probably the best at adapting from generation to generation, decade to decade to decade in football and off the field. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you know, another another reason to call him the greatest. So, oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I mean, that's why I was bringing up a while ago. He would sometimes put his biggest – dig his heels in the ground going, we're not going to do that. But then he saw the effectiveness of it. He knew it was not going to go back to the way he was doing things. And then he would take it, he would study it and become better at it than the other people running it. You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. just great examples. But then also, you know, Alabama, what, uh, uh, three Heisman trophies under his under his watch? Uh, do I have that number correct? Anyway, oh, bottom line yeah. is uh, – uh, Ingram, I think I've got it right, but yeah, obviously uh, Mark Ingram was the first player ever at Alabama Devontae to win the Heisman Smith Trophy. And, and Derrick Henry and Devontae yeah. Smith, right? Yeah, yeah. So hey, uh, I look forward to him to be in 20 four, miles yeah. up the road now in Jupiter. I'm, I'm hoping to bump into him quite more, you know, often. Uh, I talked to Dabo Sweeney yesterday, by the way, and uh, I'm hoping what, to see yeah. I'm hoping to see uh hoping to see Nick around the neighborhood now. All right, before you go, I mean uh the early odds were out, you know, by the couple of the betting services or the odds makers and uh this was your top. Uh, let's see. This was the going down from three to one. The the uh, yeah. the odds. The, the leading candidate right now, three to one, is Dan Lanning from Oregon. I attended, and it goes all the way. I'll go all the way just to down to ten to one. The ten to one in both of these ranks is Urban Meyer. I don't see that happening. No. But the bottom line is, it's always thrown out there, right? But it goes in order: Dan Lanning, Debo Sweeney, Lane Kiffin. Deion Sanders, Kellen DeBoer, DeBoer, uh, Pat Shermer, and uh, Urban Meyer. That's just the ones from three to one to ten to one odds. Who do you like in that list? I believe I don't think I like anybody in that list because I don't. You don't think, like Dan Lanning? Go ahead. No, I. You know, there's so much talk about Alabama and uh, Dabo because Dabo Dabo played there. Now, Dabo's got to face that question. I'm sure they've been calling him tonight about this. You know, Dabo's been a little a little bit fed up. Now, when I talked to him, we didn't Obstinate. know this news. We didn't yeah. know this news. Uh, but he's been a little fed up with the Clemson fan base getting spoiled. So whether this is his chance to go home or not, I, I don't, you know, really don't. He's put that down over the years because Nick was a the coach there. But I want to see how he answers it now. But uh, – I wouldn't be surprised if they turn a former Alabama assistant. I think Nick's going to have great input in this hire. And, uh, I mean, they'd be crazy not to go to him and say, look, who do you like in this? But uh, uh, I saw Kalen DeBoer, and let's face it, he had a great season. Boy, he did some things those last two weeks that 
uh, made me shake my head. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, so, you know, I haven't even thought about that. I've been thinking about what, other things today in Nick Saban, but I haven't even thought about who they're going to What hire. about Lane Kiffin, though? I mean, uh, that would be a hell of a jump from Ole Miss to Alabama. Guys have you know, moved from one, it, from one school to the other in Southeastern Conference before, obviously. Well, that's happened. He just turned oh, yeah. down he turned down Auburn a year right, ago. Right. He turned down AM, I think, this year. Yeah. Uh, Tommy Tupperville, you know, went from uh what Ole Miss right, to uh right. to Auburn. Go ahead though. But you know what? Lane Kiffin, I told somebody the other day, nobody hit a home run in this transfer portal more than Lane Kiffin just did. He signed, I think, five starters that were other schools for that defense going in the next year. Yeah. And he's really got it. You want to talk about a dark horse to win a national title? Last I looked, they're 14 to one odds going in the next year. I'm telling you, if they could win that, and now we have a 12-team playoff, they win that SEC West, they're a good bet to do so. And yeah. they lost their running back to Ohio State. Boy, they got some talent coming back. And yeah. if you've ever been to Oxford, Mississippi, there's worse places to live. Oh, yeah. I just I, – I don't think that's a good move for him. I mean, you know, when you think about following a legend and uh, – there's been jokes all the time. You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to follow Woody Hayes. I want to follow that was Lou Holtz. Lou Woody Holtz. Yeah. Lou said that. And I, I'd feel that way about the Alabama job. I mean, you come in there and you go uh, 10 and two, and they're going to compare you to Nick Saban. Now, I, I just see maybe a former assistant of his coming back home. Somebody like even Bill O'Brien or somebody that he recommends. And I just threw that off the top of my head, but we'll, we'll see what happens, but I, I'm sure they're going to lean on him for advice in that hire. You know, you know, you know. It's funny though, Jeff. It is so, the coaching profession is such a small world because remember a while ago I said uh, Pete Carroll left Ohio State in uh, which uh, which op gave the opening uh, for uh, Nick Saban to take that spot, and Pete Carroll went to North Carolina State, and you know who his coach was? His head coach was at North Carolina State. He went there as a defensive coordinator. It was Monty Kiffin. You know what I mean? Monty Kiffin, Who's yeah. Lane Kiffin's dad? I mean, just right. all these little, all these little Kevin Bay six, uh, six degrees to Kevin Bacon kind of thing are just interesting to me in the coaching profession. I can see Lane Kiffin making that move because, you know, it's it it's been a struggle to get Ole Miss to where it is to what you're talking about right now is a possible well pot women. But at okay. Alabama, you know, at Alabama, the resources are there. The the you know the fans are there. They are spoiled rotten right now, without a doubt. And I remember, I grew up in Alabama, like I said, then we moved to Texas, but there was this big difference, big little chasm between Bear Bryant and Gene Stallings, and then there was this big chasm between Gene Stallings and Nick Saban. And uh, like you just said, maybe it's not a good thing to follow that guy. Let the next guy fall on his face, and then you follow him. But uh, well, I, don't, I don't think it's a slam dunk like a, that, that you've necessarily got to go out and get a big name no. to replace Nick Saban. Because Nick no. Saban was a, a great name, and he had won a national championship, but, I mean, he wasn't what he is now. You know what I mean? And Well, you look at the you look at the history of college football, and the guys that became legends when they were hired were Jerry nobodies. Grace. They were nobodies. They were nobodies. So hiring, hiring an established legend or a, a top five coach has very rarely led to repeated success. It hasn't. You know, right. it's just – it's just like uh, Texas A&M thought they hit the home run of home runs by stealing Jimbo Fisher from Florida State and paying him at that time $75 million and then giving him a boost after one Orange Bowl. And yeah. look how that ended up. That's not always the answer. These no. assistants that are up and coming, a guy young enough where you know he's going to stay there 10 to 20 years, 
Those are the type of guys that develop in the legends. And Dan Lanning. But Lane Kiffin has got a side to him where he's, you know, he's not real good with dealing with administrators and establishment. Well, Alabama is number one. If you look at the establishment of programs, Ohio yeah. State, Alabama, Michigan, Notre Dame, you have to be able to work with people that are used to winning, work with administrators at the top of their game. He's perfect for Ole Miss. Because yeah. Ole Miss was a seven and four, six and five program for years. They're happy to have him at 10 and two. He ought to just stay there and, and remain there. But Alabama, I don't think, would turn to him. Yeah. And uh, because of Nick Saban knows enough about him and how it's what he's like to work with, he could be immature at times, very immature. That's yeah. not what Alabama needs or wants or probably will go get. Yeah. I know one thing. They need to move quickly, though, because they're going to be, like I said, the Vultures are already circling to pick up some players. Uh, maybe from top to bottom. I know George is right there too, but maybe from top to bottom, as talented a roster as there is in college football, is what Nick Saban, he's not leaving the cupboard empty. But in this age, it can empty out really fast. Hey, uh, Jeff Snook, man, uh, appreciate you coming on. Did and, we cover uh, this subject uh, exhaustively? Yeah, we did. I, I, just, I just wanted to probe, you, probe your brain, man, because like I said, you've been around some great coaches, man. And you pay attention. You've written books about some of these guys. Uh, your Frank Beamer book, everybody ought to read that book. It's excellent. Just talking about where he came from, how he got to where he was, and, you know, the success he became. And uh, you never know who's going to turn it around for you, right? You never know, like you just said a while ago. You know, it could be just, just the guy sitting in the corner taking notes, right, not saying anything right. to anybody. He it could just, be your guy, right? I think it, I think of Tom Osborne. One of the greatest yeah. nights of my life is I sat on a bar stool with a guy named Bob Devaney at the American Legion in Lincoln, Nebraska, when I was covering Florida State. He was the athletic director then. <clears throat> Excuse me. They played there in 1985. Bob Devan invited me out for a couple of drinks at the Legion. I sat there and talked with him. Tom Osborne was named his successor after the 1972 season, I believe it was. 71 yeah. season, the game of the century. Nobody knew who Tom Osborne was. And look what he accomplished. He won three titles in his final four years. Could have won more. Then I wrote a book with Tom Osborne. I've, I've been very fortunate. I uh, wrote a book with Barry Switzer, got to know yeah. those guys, but those guys were legends. But the point being was when they got named head coaches, they were assistants under other guys that were legends. Nobody really knew who they were and they became legends because of how much they learned and how great of coaches they were. And I mean, same with Paterno under Rip Angle, you can go on down the list. So, uh, you yeah. know, who Alabama turns to, but no, I've been, you mentioned that I've been, I thought back one day I was sitting out here looking at the water at my place and i just thought man i've been lucky because i've i've not only met legends as you have i've got i spent time around and worked with them and they're just it, it's been fantastic and you know some of them are gone now and you think back on it you're really fortunate we were fortunate to do this for a living all these years oh yeah yeah by the way i asked you a while ago but i'll ask you again is nick saban the end of the line for the for the old time in old time i don't mean i think you know what i mean i mean uh, are coaches going to be able to stay at places? I mean, he was Alabama, what, 16, 17 years? 17 are, years. Sir. Are coaches going to be able to stay at places that long anymore, do you think? I mean, here's uh, Ryan Day sitting here. We're not going to get into that. That'd be another podcast. No, I don't want to talk about that. No, no yeah. it's the money's changed it. The money's changed it. You know, I mean, look at Kirk Ferentz. He's the last, probably the dinosaur. Yeah, I can't think of anybody else point. that's been around that long at one school because when you, let's face it, you're making eight to 12 million a year. And the pressure of recruiting, the internet, social media has changed demands, has changed the appreciation. 
uh, everything has changed. So you get five to six, seven successful years under your belt. You're set for life. You get fired. You're set for life. You don't need yeah. to get back into it. Look at a guy like Dan Mullen, all that success at Mississippi State. He goes to Florida, gets a $17 million buyout. He doesn't need to coach again. These guys don't need to coach again. So their shelf life is very, very short compared to the way it used to be. I mean, they used to do it with the love of the game. They didn't care about the money. They weren't going to do anything else. Now that's all changed. You get fired, you take your golden parachute, get into TV or write a book or retire or whatever. But it's just everything's changed about it. But yeah, you're probably right. Nick Saban's probably the last old school coach remaining. Uh, France would probably be in that category. Maybe he's the last old school coach. These young guys, I mean, I look at their ages. You know, they're a hell of a lot younger than us, Tim. And, and, you know, like Ryan Day and even – you know, you look at uh, Lincoln Riley and these guys. I mean, yeah. I got I got T-shirts older than these guys. Yeah, yeah, you sure do, man. You ought to wash those every. You ought to wash those every now yeah. and then. By the way, if they're Ohio State shirts, they got holes in them, and I don't throw them out. I keep. <laughs> I got you. You're that's where Ohio State got the name, the Ragtag Bunch. But anyway, I just made that up. Hey, but I digress. Jeff Snook, uh, thanks for joining the Tim May Show, my man. And ladies and gentlemen, until next week, we'll see you then. Take care, Tim.